Welcome to the latest edition of the Carmichael Governance Podcast. I'm Dermot O'Carbui, CEO of Carmichael. Carmichael is a charity that provides supports to other Irish charities, particularly in the area of governance. You can find details of what we do and a wide range of free resources on our website at carmichaelireland.ie. You can also find previous editions of our governance podcast on our website or on your favourite podcast platform, be that Apple, Spotify, Acast. Today I'm speaking to Kingsley Aikens, CEO of the Networking Institute, about the whole topic of networking in general, but also how it relates to the non-profit sector. So Kingsley, maybe to start you might just introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about the Networking Institute. Okay, well thanks, and thanks for having me on. Um, I'm, uh, I'm a dub from here, uh, born educated, but i got to say quite a long time ago. Uh, and then, like many people from here, I got a bit of a wanderlust, a wanderbug. And so I've worked in six countries around the world. And uh, I have to admit that when I started off in my career, I really didn't like the thought of networking. I thought it was a very sleazy, slimy activity for people late at night flicking out business cards. I just thought it was pretty gruesome. But as I progressed through my career, I began to realize, you know, no, um, you know, this is critically important. And to have a strong and diverse network really helps you particularly survive and thrive in countries where, in, in my case, I knew nobody when I arrived. And so I began to realize it was important. So I spent a lot of time overseas and eventually came back here. I had uh, a slew of kids and I wanted to bring them back up, bring them up here. And um, I got called by lots of organizations and companies saying, would you come in and talk about networking? And I was kind of curious about this because um, what's come out of this is that schools and colleges don't really teach networking. Companies generally don't have strategies for networking, but everybody says it's critically important. So there's a kind of a contradiction in all of that. And then I began to realize, and I read an article once that said, the number one predictor of career success is being in an open network. Now, a closed network would be if you had Dermot, you're having a party and you invite everybody you knew to the party and they all knew each other. That's a kind of a closed network. But an open network means you've got lots of diverse connections in lots of different places. So, so kind of a, a light bulb went off uh, when I realized that. Um, and then a few other things. I used to work for the Chorus Trucks Hall. It's now Enterprise yes, so it's your age there, the Kings. Uh, it's on my age there, uh, just after the Boer War. And um, uh, an IDA who are still around. Um, and I realized that, you know, life is a game of inches. The difference between winning and losing, success and failure, you see it in sport all the time, is minuscule, wafer thin, just, just incredibly narrow. But the implications can be enormous. You know, in, in the IDA sense, when I was working with them, if we won an FDI decision for Ireland, fantastic. If we came second, we got nothing, zero, zilch, nada, you know, and the difference was often tiny. So I, I came up with these concepts. We were always trying to find what was the nudge factor that would nudge a deal in our direction. And very often it was finding the right sorts of people. And I used to call these people tipping agents, people who could nudge a deal, tip a deal in our direction, uh, and very often, this whole notion of marginal gains, you know, if you're 1% better, you often don't get 1% more, you often get a whole lot more. Or if you're 1% worse, you often don't get 1% less, you often get nothing, like in the IDA story. So anyway, long answer to basically say, I began to realize that actually, you know, people, relationships are critically important. It's not about the what, it's not about the how, it's often about the who. And that drove me and got me engaged and back here now for over 10 years in Ireland 
just really busy in this space. You were talking there, it reminds me, um, a common friend of ours, David, when I joined David many years ago, he said, you need to get good at networking. And I had that horror, because I had that image, like going to chamber events with your business cards at the thing and sort of trying to make small talk. So how would you define networking now in terms of what are the essential pillars of a a good networking approach? Well, I think, um, you know, a rather simplistic definition of networking is building long-term hearts and minds, sustainable relationships. Kind of everybody buys into that. I actually take a slightly different approach because most people think, you know, I need to network because I want to get a sale, I want to get a donation, um, I want to get a job. I actually think it's the exact opposite. It's about not getting stuff for yourself. It's what can I give to my network? How can I give to my network on a consistent basis on the premise that the more you do that, guess what, the more comes back to you from your network. So it's kind of a 360 uh, approach that I take to this stuff. Um, And it's not about any one big thing. I think the lovely thing about networking, it's about lots and lots of small things, which if you do on a consistent daily basis, they become habits, they become rituals, and then they kind of become part of who you are as a person. Um, And I actually have some publications. One one is called 50 Networking Tips. You know, I have a whole load of little small things that that if you do these things and they all add up, um, the cumulative, they make a big impact. I'll give you a slightly cheesy example, but I'm always writing handwritten notes to people. Um, You know, I have a pen, I have ink, I have a card with the Networking Institute. I have a stamp, I have an envelope, there's a post box. This is like Charles Dickens stuff, you know. But I can guarantee you the people, it'll be the only letter they get handwritten this week, this month, maybe this year. So when you think of all those little small things that actually show that you care, show that you're interested in other people, and make a bit of an effort... You know, what's that line about um, always go the extra mile, there's less traffic there. You know, if you just go that 51% instead of 49%, can be the difference maker. I've, we've known each other quite a while, and I, I did t- one of the big takes I talked to you before about the whole principle of networking. It's, it's about giving rather than taking. Yeah. And that whole thing, you build up that bank of goodwill because it's it's it, networks are there to when when you when you need it you have invested quite a lot and people would say David was there for me or you know small things um, so I think that's important to approach it that it's not as you say how do I make a, a sale here it's what can I give how can I build a relationship with this person that I may may or may not need in the future but if I do need them I know that I'll have invested uh, in, in them and given them the time when they needed it yeah I mean I think your ne- your network can be a safety net. Uh, in times of difficulty, but it can be a trampoline as well. You know, that can bounce you into all sorts of different situations and different... You, you mentioned, you used the word bank, and I sometimes say your network's a bit like... It's a bit like the ATM machine. If you keep going to the ATM machine and taking money out, sooner or later there comes this familiar flashing sign that says insufficient funds, unless you're putting money back in. And I think that's the way it is with networking. If all you do with your network is get stuff for yourself, me, 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 guess what? You run out of runway and that flashing sign comes up. And often when people, because we all know people that are natural networkers and they seem to the greater work in the room. Are networkers born or is it a skill that you can develop and build up skills yourself? I mean, you may not have, you know, and I'm, I would be an introvert naturally, you know, so go, the idea of networking in the old sense used to scare the hell out of me. But is there things that you can do? Is it a natural skill or is it a skill that can also be learned? Yeah, I actually think we tend to mix up networking and sociability. 
I, th- I think we tend to think that the most sociable person is by definition the best networker. And here's what's interesting, and I, I think you might find this particularly interesting. Introverts can be better at networking than extroverts. And, and why is that? Well, because they do it with decency and authenticity. They ask questions and they listen, which is the number one skill in networking. The experts trying to wow you, trying to impress you, you know, trying to talk about themselves. It was always about me, 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 always trying to tell you about great things that happened in their life. They tend to be what we call narcissistic uh, listeners. In other words, you know, if I said to you, I'm thinking of buying a car, and you say, well, I got one last week. The guy wanted 20000 I got him out to 10000 It's fantastic. You've taken my topic, and you've hijacked it and then made it yours. And I think a lot of people do that. You do. You see people where you're just waiting to get back in. They're not really listening to you. They think listening is, uh, is a time to prepare what they're going to say next rather than hear what the other person is saying. You've been doing networking, for, as you said, for quite some time and all over the world. Is there any difference in terms of the type of networking that people working in the non-profit sector would need to do? Uh, or is there any way different um, in other sectors? Or is it just the general, the, those core principles and skills are the same? I think they're pretty much the same. I, I worked in, you know, on the business side of things and then I worked running a non-profit for 20 odd years so I think the word is business they're businesses you know and I, I, I think the great book on networking was written by Dale Carnegie like decades and decades ago and it, but it's still in every airport bookshop you know how to win friends and influence people and probably his most simple and most powerful line he said people do business with people they like and trust and I don't know if that's changed all that much you know throughout the years um, and I think you know we're social animals we crave social interaction that's why the period we're in now is so intriguing, what with lockdown and COVID, um, but also technology and chat GPT and all these things that are happening. You know, at the same time, you know, we still need connections and relationships. I sometimes ask a question to people. When you look back on your life, what were the most memorable occasions? Were they spent in front of a screen or were they spent with other people? And the answer is pretty obvious, isn't it? And, and that sort of... You know, you just mentioned the, the period we've just gone through and the transformation we've gone through, and we were just chatting there earlier about how Zoom has transformed a whole lot of things. Has it transformed the, the area of networking? Because you say people like people, but sometimes you need to be in in the company of people to, know, to really get to know them. Has that put new challenges? I think so. Yeah, I mean, I, I think. Well, here's what's interesting. Here's what I'm hearing around town from CEOs today. They're saying that particularly the young gener- next generation coming out of school and university are fantastic, deductive, analytical, sharp, tra- fabulous, but actually crap when it comes to a lot of the social skills, a lot of the soft skills. So they'd much prefer to text rather than to speak. They don't like to use a telephone. They, what would I say, you sort of thing. So I do think, you know, nothing stays the same and we're all constantly evolving. And I do think... Uh, Technology, in many ways, sort of saved our vacant during COVID because it, it opened up opportunities and other ways of doing things. It opened up the opportunities to work from home. So, I, I, you know, it's, I don't think I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. I don't want to be too critical about technology. At the same time, I think it's very important that we, as individuals, completely understand the power of technology, and so we're high tech, but we also retain um, humanity, and you like, and so we're high touch. And getting that balance right, and I think we're in a world where we're veering very much towards the tech side to the, to the exclusion of the touch side. And so we have to keep pulling ourselves back. I, I was smiling there while you were talking because I was just thinking about my own daughter and, and would, would be that sort of generation, much comfortable, you know, as you say, 
sending electronic messages rather than picking up the phone and having a chat. Where, you know, you know, think of generations of teenage and and, and people in the twenties. The long phone calls; those are those are gone. But the other challenge I think this generation are getting, which is unfortunate, is the the way the way of the world of work has changed, where there's more working from home. And I'm going to use my daughter; she'd kill me for keep using it as an example, but. She's worked with one of these um, major professional services firms for the past 12 months. She's worked from her bedroom. And I think back to my time when I was her age, that there was the whole socialisation with your colleagues. And, and that I have still friends from my startup yeah. group that had back in the 80s. So I think they are getting a raw deal in terms of building those social skills, which leads to building networks. I think yeah. they, 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 they are particularly disadvantaged. And I think employers and managers need to be thinking about this. I think it's a very challenging. I mean, I don't want us, to, the two of us, to come across like those two old fellas in Sesame Street up yes, in the up, <laughs> up in the balcony. But but here's what I, again I'm hearing. I was with a managing partner of one of the biggest law firms in the city the other day, and he said we're not that happy with the way things are now because because of remote working, and, and we're not against it, and I, I don't think we're ever going to go back. But we may get some halfway house on this one, like a four day week. But what he was saying is that. There's less business development, there's less learning on the job, there's less serendipity, luck and chance encounters, there's less loyalty to the organisation, there's harder to create a company culture. So some real fundamental challenges with this. Um, and, um, you know, I, I think there's, there's a bit of reckoning to come over the next while on that. All power is with employees right now because of, there's, there's virtually no unemployment in a way. So... so um, so, 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 and c- people are playing companies off each other. But I would be a little. I, I would share some of your concerns about the, that evolution. Uh, when I worked for the trade port, course, or the, we had great crack. I think there's less crack. I'm not sure where boys meet girls. Uh, the the answer is always online, but I'm not sure. Um, and I think we're starching a bit of fun out of our lives and a bit of adventure. You know. Yeah, and I think. But the challenge I would see it lies with the management because a lot of the new generation that are starting work, they don't know anything different. So they don't know what they're missing because they've never had it. Um, but I'd, I would say to those managers, think of your, when you started out in your career. And I think we do need to take it seriously. Because I, say, I think we are moving to a transactional relationship in a lot of between with staff and, and organizations because yeah. when you're talking about working in organizations and you and, and like working in it you, you come back to your thing you like people that are working in those organizations Maybe, not necessarily the what the organization is it's the people yeah. that you work with your colleagues that yeah. the 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 vibe that you get from coming in and, and meeting as I said those those chats but also part of a lot of your social life was built around going out in the evening time with colleagues. you don't have that to the same extent I have a whole module on the training organisation. We have an online training course, and it's called Funnels of Serendipity. How random chance can change your life. One introduction, one conversation can fundamentally change your life. You're only one conversation away from a life-changing decision, but they don't happen sitting at your desk or lying in bed. They happen when you're out and about, when you're talking to strangers, when you put your talents on display, you know, when you change your routines, when you do stuff, all the things you just talked about guess what? Luck and chance enter into your life. So some people think that serendipity, luck and chance, like a bolt of lightning or, you know, winning the lottery or, or, or getting cancer, there's bad luck. I actually think it's more like, it's like a, it's like a, a, a sort of a, a wind at your back and every so often you can grab it. And planning gets you to what I call the tip of the iceberg. But luck and chance 
gets you to the seven-eighths of the iceberg, which is hidden and underwater. And it certainly impacted my life. I mean, I met one individual who offered me an opportunity to go and work in the U.S. and fundamentally changed my life. Um, I won't bore you with the story, but but I think when you when you talk to people, they all have those stories. Yes, I, I think I have a few stories myself when you were yeah. saying it because, yeah, yeah I, my life changed. It, you know, in my whole work career, I, I, I bump into somebody on the street that I hadn't seen for a year and. Changed, you know. I said I was thinking to do X, and he said, "Why don't you join?" There was um, Arthur Anderson at the time, and I had never even considered that as a possibility. And he arranged an interview, and within three weeks, I was my my whole work career and my life had changed as a result of just bumping in. I happened to bump into. I hadn't seen him for a year, and then bumped into him on the street. And when you think about, you know, every when you look at lots of people, everybody's got ideas, but they're not written down. You can't Google them. They're in their heads. And the only way you can extract those ideas is to connect, communicate, collaborate, cooperate, you know, talk, converse. Um, and that's lost if you're just purely exercising that out of your life. People still, no matter how you promote the benefits of networking, have hang-ups about, you know, and, and they say, what sort of things would you say to them to help them to get over this sort of hang-up? And, it, and as we said earlier, it's not flashing your, your business card or the, the electronic equivalent of it. It's much more richer and deeper than that. What sort of things would you have in terms of tips to sort of move off that sort of, oh, I don't like networking, or I don't know where to start? You know, most people hate it. You're right. It's, it's got a pretty sleazy image. It's not taught at school or college. Companies don't have it as a KPI. I mean, there's lots of negatives uh, around all this networking stuff. It doesn't show up in recruitment. As I said, we, we mix it up with, with sort of sociability. Um, and a lot of people don't realize that as their career progresses, the technical skills they need as they get their job in the first instance, critically important as they are, become less important and relationships become more important. Now, I mean, I think... Um, I think the great, uh, very often the great drive, driver of things in life is actually self-interest. So when you, when you can convince people that actually this is really important for your company, of course, it's really important for you. It's important for you. It's important for your career. There's a, one, there's a great uh, theory guy, by a guy called Harvey Coleman. It's called the pie theory of career progress and, and, and networking. And he says, how well you do your job, you won't like this, contributes 10% to your career progress. Because he said, doing a good job it's mandatory. It's the minimum. It's expected of everybody. You've got to do a great job. Uh, and he said uh, you get paid on performance. You get promoted on what other people think of your potential. So now we're introducing these two pesky little words, other people. Now he's introducing an element of subjectivity to your career progress. So his pie theory, 10% performance, 30% is your image. What are you known for? What's your reputation? Your reputation is what somebody says about you when you're not in the room. Um, and what are you a go-to person for? What would you be known for? He says that's 30% and then the killer. He says 60% of career progress and building your network is about exposure. Who's seen you in action? Who's seen you perform? Who's seen you speak? Who's seen you deliver? All that kind of stuff. So it turns on its head the old piece of parental advice that I got starting out in my career, which is work hard, keep your head down, keep out of trouble, and let your work speak for itself. And the problem with that is that work doesn't speak, other people speak. So there's an element of subjectivity. So you need to have these relationships. So I break down, you need, everybody needs three types of networks. You need a, a personal network and friends and buddies and neighbours and schoolmates and sportsmates and all that kind of stuff. And they're great and they can introduce you to very diverse groups of people. That's fantastic. You need an operational network. 
They're the people who will help you do your job efficiently and effectively. You don't have to love them. You don't have to spend your weekends. You don't have to go on holidays with them. But you have to have a harmonious working relationship. So that's important. And then you need a third type of network. You need a strategic network. And they're the people who are going to help you get to where you want to get to in the next few years. Because the reality is the network you had in the first half of your career is generally not good enough for the network you need in the second half of your career. So you've got to be sort of thoughtful, intentional, and strategic. We all have these organic networks which just happen. But now you've got to be a little bit more purposeful in this. And that means taking action. Yeah, and it sometimes can be scary when you think, well, if I work hard, I'll get the due reward. But this is saying you need more than that to go beyond the, sort of the basic stuff. And I think thinking strategically, if I'm a young person in my 20s now and you know, a whole range of different careers, as, as we know, things change, what sort of things do I need to be doing now to build those sort of networks that I might need when I'm in my 30s and I'm in my 40s and I might be in my third or fourth different career in different organizations? But what sort of habits should I be forming? You need to be smart to get into these great companies and organizations, and, but lots of people are smart. But you've got to be something else. You've got to be savvy. Savvy be, means being streetwise, having cup on, understanding how the system works, be understanding politics with a small p. I mean, they're important. But the challenge is that you've gone through a school and a college, generally, and progress is determined by a grade, a score, a metric. It's a mark. And it's got nothing to do with the person sitting beside you. And that determines how you progress. Then you get into the real world, and there's a whole series of things that count, but can't be counted. You know, resilience, determination, empathy, grit, humour, attitude, all that stuff, you know. So I'd be saying to people in their 20s, of course you need to work on your hard skills and get these technical skills, but you have to work on your soft skills too. I think a lot of people miss, they miss that kind of really important thing which kind of goes back to some of the things we said earlier about how and why people progress. And you need in life, I think you particularly need in that sort of period, you need mentors and people who will mentor you and help you, and they'll give you the good, the bad, and the ugly. They might be in your organisation or they might not be in your organisation. But you also need something else. You need a sponsor. A mentor talks to you, but a sponsor talks about you. Because every major decision about you, your career... Uh, your compensation, your promotion will be taken by a group of people sitting around a table in a room and you won't be in that room. I'm intrigued with this idea of a sponsor. Is this some sponsor that does the sponsor know that they're a sponsor or is it that, that they fall into naturally because you've cultivated uh, uh, the right sort of uh, image yeah. and, and behaviours with the person that will, will become your yeah. Sponsor, or is it say I want you, I want you, Kingsley, to be my sponsor? Yeah. Doesn't does it work like that? I think it does work like that. I mean, I think you know, you, you you identify people that you have a good, strong relationship and respect for, and uh, you know, we are the average of the five people we spend most time with. Is the old Jim Rohn comment? You know, so I think identifying some of these people that you can spend time with and you can learn from them, learn from them. Some of the stuff rubs off, you know, sort of osmosis. You just, you know, I'm a founder member of an organization called CASE, which stands for copy and steal everything, right? <laughs> so figure out who's good at this stuff, you know? And, and there are certain characteristics that good networkers have that we can kind of all observe, um, hang around with and, and learn from. I mean, good networks attend to work hard at this stuff. You know, work is part of the word network. Um, they're humble. They don't brag. Uh, they don't keep score. They, they, don't, they don't say, hey, dear, but I did you a, 
I did you a favor six weeks ago. You owe me one, pal. They don't sort of think like that. They think like farmers, actually, who plants the seed, waters, nurtures, and just knows, is confident that there will be a harvest. You know, so they, they, they get it. They make it, they make, they hang out in the rim of their network, on the edges, so they're meeting disparate type of people. I mean, I think there's this whole concept of um, homophily. If it's, I always throw in a fancy Greek word yes, in these I interviews. Yes. Homophily is um, the tendency we all have to spend time with people who are just like us. Okay? Now, we all do it, and I do. We all do it. But, but we're living in the city, Dublin. When I grew up, it was, we used to call it male, pale, and stale. It was not a very cosmopolitan international city. And consider these statistics. Right now in the United States, 14% of the population of the U.S. were not born in the U.S., in Ireland, it's 17%. In Dublin, it's 22%. But of the working age population of Dublin, it's 28%. So we are living in very diverse, uh, international, cosmopolitan uh, city. But here's the question. Does your network reflect the diversity of the society you live in, the economy you work in? And for most of us, the answer is probably no. And all the research by the great Baines and McKinsey's and Deloitte's and World Economic Forum all say the same thing. If that's the case, you as an individual, you as a company, you as an organisation underperform. So that's a challenge for us here in this new world and this new environment that we're living in here is actually to seek out what I call unlike-minded people. You know, there is this thing called stranger danger, which um, what do we teach our kids from a very young age? We say, don't talk to strangers. But actually our kids are at more danger statistically from friends and family, a lot more than they are from strangers. And yet, you know, we all tend to live in these kind of slightly um, bubbles. Um, and so we have to crack that and find ways of seeking out people who are different from us. There is the comfort zone, as you say, staying with people that you're comfortable with, that you know and you're familiar with. But it is, so you're saying that there's a need to be strategic about it and say, I do need to go beyond the, that comfort zone. I do need to broaden that network um, to understand. In terms of We've said what people are at cusp of building the network have to do. What do the immediate supervisors and, and the managers of those need to do to, to help them along the way? I think um, I think organisations have to really think about creating a culture of networking within their organisations, and it starts, of course, with internal networking. A lot of organisations are siloed. You know, people internally don't build connect with. There was an old line that said, if Hewlett-Packard knew what Hewlett-Packard knows, it'd be a great company. <laughs> they all have great connections, but they don't kind of interact. So I think I actually put a paper out a while ago saying I think companies should appoint a CNO, a chief networking officer, that actually you know helps with building this culture within the organization. Because organizations now want to what we call hire and wire. They want to hire people and wire it to their network. So now when you're being interviewed for a job, they want to know about your qualifications, of course. They want to know about your experience, of course. But they want to know something else. They want to know who you know. Because we live in a world where it's not what you know. It's not even who you know. It's who knows you. And that then enters into the whole area of how do you become known? How do you build a reputation? How do you uh, build your personal brand? I'm always uncomfortable with the word personal brand because it makes you sound like a tin of beans or something. Yeah. But actually, whether you like it or not, you have a brand. In fact, some people have say to me, oh, I don't have a brand. Not having a brand, a personal brand, is having a personal brand. <laughs> so you've got to decide, you know, it's a, do, you want to do you want to determine what your personal brand is or do you want other people to determine it? And it's an important part. And you have to have this whole notion nowadays of this thing called your managing director, chairman, CEO of a company, a startup company called Me Inc. 
You're going to take responsibility for your own career. My dad left school at 14, joined a company, left that company age 77. Just a quick 63 years in one company. Those days are gone. Yeah. Absolutely, and, and it has changed quite rapidly. It's sort of scary and sometimes about, but you do need to work at this. And I think that's one of the lessons I'm getting from our discussion here is that it won't happen. It, you, you have to make it happen, and it starts from, I know, maybe say it might be cheesy about the personal brand, but it is, how do you raise your profile? How do you build a sense of trust that people want to know you and find out more about you and talk about you? As you say, that, that takes deliberate sitting down and say, what can I do today, next week, next month, about raising my likability or trustworthiness or whatever those terms are, are suitable? But I do think it, it is a strategic exercise that starts from your early career. It'll, it will be pretty shallow, but that's that's only natural but as you grow you need to be thinking how do I move and I think it's exceptionally needed if we're going to change careers maybe four or five times you you won't have the companies that are I'm going to stay with this company for my life that those days are gone oh that's been excellent just one final question Kinsley and and because this has been fascinating um and I, I made a classic mistake mixing up the, who's a good networker and who, who's a sociable person. But from your experience and, and, and being a, an expert in this area, who stands out to you as being, you know, a, 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 an excellent networker that you say this person does it, um, has got it, and, and, and does it naturally and, 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 and exudes all those sort of good characteristics you were talking about? Yeah, and I, I come across lots of people who I think are very efficient and effective at this level. In terms of a name that maybe people may or may not know, but I worked for Tony O'Reilly for a long time, for over 20 years. And, and he was a, you know, he was a very successful in rugby, and he used rugby as a passport, you know, around the world. And I was intrigued by that. He, um, he became head of Heinz and various other companies. But when he walked into a room, you always knew he was there. He took an intense interest in everybody. I mean, Bill Clinton has a touch of that as well. You know, or, you know, he makes you feel you're the only person in the room sort of thing. But O'Reilly did this on a global level. Uh, and he, he really, I think, championed the whole notion that there is such a thing as an Irish empire, not built by military might or force of arms. We don't have a great military record in the invading countries. But 10 million people left here uh, in total in history. Uh, in fact, I was saying the other day that there was a time when the Prime Minister of New Zealand was called Muldoon, the Prime Minister of Australia was called Keating, the United Kingdom was Callaghan, Canada was Mulroney, in the United States the President was Reagan. I mean, what an incredible sort of tribe globally that we have coming out of this place. And that was his vision to find a, set up an organization that would connect all these people and get them engaged. And, and he set up the Ireland Funds, and I, was, I worked for them. And I'm a big believer that nobody starts a large organization. Everything starts at zero. And when we set up the Ireland Funds in New York with a fancy big dinner, um, the dinner was so unsuccessful, the only reason we had a second dinner a year later was to pay for the first dinner. <laughs> That's $700 million ago. And it was his vision, his idea, that drove that thing. So I just was always in, in, uh, in admiration and awe, really, of how he managed to keep so many different balls in the air, work, sport, uh, non-profit, etc. But he did it, and he did it with great style and elan, and he was a wonderful speaker. And he made it look easy. He made it look effortless. But behind that, there was a lot of planning. And huge, planning. huge lot of stuff going on. Yeah. Kingsley, thank you so much. As always, you've been always very generous with your time. I do appreciate you sharing your insights today on networking. Thank you. Thank you for listening to our latest Carmichael Governance Podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did, it would be of great benefit to us if you could give it a rating, as that helps to create greater awareness of these podcasts. 
So until the next time, Slán Gofól. 